Welcome to Spirits of Whiskey. We explore the wide world of whiskey through the many colorful personalities who make it, promote it, write about it, and more. With each podcast, Carrie Moynihan, a certified bourbon steward and bartender, and yours truly, Philip Dobar, director of the Cocktail Collection, interview whiskey's most important names. From high-profile makers, blenders, and ambassadors, to out-of-the-way innovators and remote pioneers. Join us as we discover the people and elements that give the water of life its spirit. It is Whiskey Wednesday, December 2nd, 2020, and you're listening to Episode 25. Today, we speak with Ashley and Colby Fry about their whiskeys and Fry Ranch. But first, stay tuned for this week's Whiskey Chronicles. Hey, do you like whiskey, food, and adventure? I do. Hi, I'm Carrie. I'm Philip. I'm Louise. I'm the chef. Chef Louise Leonard, as in our World of Wheezy segment host here on the podcast, and Whiskey, a Chef's Journey. That chef. That's right. The project that started this very podcast. The series stars our very own chef, Louise Leonard, winner of Emmy-winning The Taste on ABC. And explores and connects the worlds of whiskey and food, city by city, country by country. Would you like to see this spirited culinary adventure on a TV near you? Well, you can by helping us finish the pilot episode through our crowdfunding campaign. For more information, including behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and incentives. And to make a pledge, visit our website, whiskeyachefsjourney.com. Or search for our campaign, Whiskey A Chef's Journey, at gofundme.com. That's gofundme.com now. Well, I think it's a cheers to that. <laughs> Bless. Cheers. cheers. Whiskey has long played a role in American history, and America's love for the spirit predates the nation's founding. So it is no surprise that saloons became more and more abundant as Americans started migrating west. By 1860, there were more than 42 saloons in Nevada's Virginia City, approximately one watering hole for every 52 men. These frontier towns had primitive living conditions, so it's surprising how formidable their saloon spirit selections were. Offerings beyond whiskey included wine produced by the Franciscan monks, as well as porters, stouts, and ales from England, and American beer from Milwaukee and St. Louis. Closer to Truckee, a California town near Lake Tahoe and the Nevada border, one could find as many as 20 different brands of rye and bourbon in local taverns. Even though one might think whiskey was the drink of choice in Wild West frontier towns, that wasn't necessarily the case. On the east slope of the Sierra Nevada, many settlers were miners and prospectors, and their drink of choice was a home-brewed beverage that, due to the strychnine present in an ingredient called tarantula juice, transmitted an unpleasant bite. Today, strychnine is considered a poison, but in the early 19th century, it was promoted by French scientists as part of a mixture that purported to cure pulmonary disorders. So what exactly was tarantula juice? Around 1852, Nicholas Ambrose, a German-born violinist nicknamed Dutch Nick, residing in Nevada, added prussic acid and tobacco oil to strychnine and gave the drink its name. Strychnine, when ingested, produces an effect similar to methamphetamine. Many who consumed it displayed erratic bursts of energy after a stint of heavy drinking. Even though this behavior was undesirable and somewhat socially unacceptable, many continued to drink whiskey and beer that was laced with strychnine because it was thought to protect against contracting illnesses. In the early 1850s, a cholera epidemic swept through the Carson River area, forcing California-bound settlers to head north and take the route through Truckee to avoid getting sick. As more and more men started migrating west, the number of saloons in the Nevada region blossomed. By 1868, the Transcontinental Railroad had made its way to Truckee, in the vicinity of which were a mere 35 residences. How many saloons do you think called the Hamlet home? Before we answer that, know that a saloon of the day was everything to everyone. Yes, it was a drinking establishment, but it also often served as a hotel, livery stable, gambling joint, dance hall, courtroom, restaurant, political arena, barbershop, and more. Now, knowing all the community functions of a saloon, let's imagine how many of them stood near the Truckee Railway Stop. Remember, the town was home to 35 households. How many saloons? 28. Nearly one saloon for every dwelling. As saloons continued to draw men like a magnet, Mark Twain wrote, The cheapest and easiest way to become an influential man and to be looked up to by the community at large was to stand behind a bar, wear a cluster diamond pin, and sell whiskey. After his days in Virginia City, Nevada, Twain added, I am not sure, but the saloon keeper held a shade higher rank than any other member of society. His opinion had weight. It was his privilege to say how elections should be run. No great movement could succeed without the countenance and the direction of the saloon keeper. 
By 1860, nearby Virginia City, Nevada, had a total population of 2,390, of which only 118 were women. And the miners, absent the restraining influence of women, often drank until they passed out. Many may think that prohibition killed saloons as a male sanctuary, but in fact, the decline came when women began demanding the right to patronize the establishments. Prohibition, however, did kill most legal whiskey distilling all across the United States, and so one can only imagine how whiskey drinking and whiskey making might have burgeoned in the Sierra Nevada region had prohibition never descended. Up next, we speak to Ashley and Colby Fry about their farm to glass distillery near the historic Nevada Saloon era region. Stay with us. Center for Culinary Culture, home to the Cocktail Collection and LA Food and Drink Museum, has a YouTube channel featuring a mix of how-to, lively talk, and culinary entertainment. Already streaming are cocktails, the grand tour, culinary quickies, music and booze with Mo, and this podcast, Spirits of Whiskey. New shows coming soon include Complete Greek, telling the story of Greek food one dish at a time, and Spirits of Rum. A podcast featuring personalities from the wide world of cane spirits. Find us on YouTube, the Center for Culinary Culture, and subscribe now. The Center for Culinary Culture, telling the story of food and drink one taste at a time. Our guests today on Spirits of Whiskey, we suspect, have quite the colorful tale to tell. They are Ashley and Colby Fry, co-founders of Fry. Ranch Distillery in Fallon, Nevada. In addition, Colby serves as CEO and is the master distiller and Colby master farmer. Oh, I think so. I'd like to. Yeah, so that's <laughs> what we tell everybody. I'm a, I'm a farmer and a distiller. You know, not one, not the other, but both. That's awesome. Got it. The actor, singer, the farmer distiller. Yeah. <laughs> right. All right. <clears throat> very good. Well, very good to have you with us. Thank you. Yes, welcome. Both of you, welcome. Yeah. So, as we always start off in the show, we always like to find out how you got to where you are today, and love to hear about your whiskey journey. Was this something as a wee little lad on your dad's farm that you said, "I want to turn this into a distillery," or how did that come to be? <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a really good question. Well, we'll start with this one. Yeah. yeah. So my family's been farming in Nevada since 1854, and since I was a little boy, I always wanted to be a farmer. But typically, we just sold our grains on the open market. We've always grown wheat, rye, barley, corn, and alfalfa, and they're really good quality here in northern Nevada. We can grow extremely high quality, you know, crops. And so, like for example, this year all of our alfalfa is going to China, Dubai, Taiwan, and Japan because it's such high quality. Wow. We've always grown really high quality grains, also. And so, you know, I went to college. I learned how to really like whiskey. I, you know, I kind of fell in love with whiskey, also. And I came back to the farm and said, "It's really sad that all these grains are just getting sold on the open market, and we don't get to see how they end up, or where they end up, or what they're creating." And and so Ashley and I decided, what better way to showcase our grains and actually be able to be farmers and let other people experience what we do than to make it into whiskey. And so, you know, there's a lot of things that you can do in on the farm to increase the quality for distilling purposes. And so by growing our own grains, we ensure that we get the best quality grains. We knew how they were grown, you know, and with better inputs, you end up with better outputs. And so, you know, it really ends up being a love of agriculture and farming and a love of whiskey. And they kind of all collided into one. And so we call our farm the whiskey farm and I'm a whiskey farmer love it. or a farmer distiller, you know? And so it's, it's really great. That's beautiful. I know when Carrie and I first read that term in relation to you, we were like, okay, you had us at whiskey farmer. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's, let's learn more. Has the farm's output always been uh, exclusively or at least largely grain? Yeah. And, and so typically we grew a lot of alfalfa and then they called rotation crops. So you can't just grow alfalfa forever and you can't, sure. it's not good for the soil to just grow corn forever. You'll sap the soil. Yeah. You need to rotate your crops. And so we've always had grain as a rotation, you know, on the farm with alfalfa. And so this is just a way that we can take our rotation crops, which are wheat, rye, barley, and corn, and actually produce something out of them rather than just selling them on the open market. And 
you know, so my family's been growing it here since 1854. Nevada didn't even become a state until 1864, 10 years later. Right. Uh-huh. We've been continually farming and we might not have grown all four crops every year, but we'd play the market and, and whichever crop, you know, was needed in the open market or higher valued, we'd plant that one. And so we've always grown wheat, rye, barley and corn here. That's very awesome. Mm-hmm. So how did the two of you meet? Yeah, so we went, I'll answer that one. We went to college together. And my first friends in college were from the same hometown as Colby. So we had mutual friends and Colby would spend all of his free time traveling back and forth to the family farm and helping his dad, you know, repair tractors and cut the hay and whatnot. And I would come out, you know, summers and weekends and just fell in love with the farming process and agriculture and uh, Churchill County where we're located. And where are you from originally? I grew up down in Gardnerville which is about an hour south of Reno. And uh, Fallon, where we're located in Churchill County, is about an hour drive east of Reno. Mm. She grew up just upstream of us. It's uh, (laughs) so, you know, on the farm here, the Carson River goes right through Gardnerville. And that's where we get all the water from the farm here. And so she grew up in Gardnerville, which is right at the base of the mountains as it goes up to Lake Tahoe. Oh, nice. And all of our water come from surrounding Lake Tahoe through this in the Sierra Mountains. So the Carson River comes from one side and the Truckee comes from the other side. That's awesome. So the two of you had been drinking from the same river your entire lives. You just didn't know it. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. Now you met in Reno, correct? At the University of Nevada, Reno? Yes. 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 Uh-huh. I almost went there. That was one of the schools that I was looking at. Really? I, yeah, I, but I did not. I ended up at San Francisco State. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I was very interested in that because, well, I used to be an avid skier. I'm now whenever I can go skiing and I would love to be able to just to hop an hour away and go to Tahoe. That was like my dream. So like, okay. Um, so what was your major, Ashley? And were you thinking I'm going to go to school, meet a farmer and become a whiskey maker? Uh, No, not at all. So I started out through the journalism school. I loved the PR and marketing side of way our college broke it down was the journalism school had PR and advertising in it. But then I started to love the business side of it as well. And I got a minor in business with specifically studying marketing. And I didn't think that we would get into whiskey. I knew we loved it. Um, Colby has always had just this passion for farming and agriculture. So I knew that we would end up on the farm. I just didn't know that we would end up making whiskey and a world-class whiskey at that, where we would see our product in Las Vegas and we're seeing it in Northern California now. And, you know, we're in 28 Whole Foods in California, which is really exciting for us to be able to see our product there. Yeah, we're we're kind of having to manage inventory because we, you know, we're limited to what we made five years ago to sell today. And so we're really kind of trying to branch off slowly because we're going to run out if we uh, expand too fast. You know, as I've always said, unmet demand is a happy. Yeah. (laughs) What year did you say, okay, we're doing this distillery and from the idea of doing it to when the distillery was up and running, how long did that take? No, that's a great question. So we actually started legally distilling in 2006. Okay. So it was quite a while ago. So we started distilling in 2006. We got our experimental license, but there was no state laws in Nevada to allow for the operation of small distilleries. And so what that did is a kind of a blessing in disguise in a way, because it gave us a long time to really fine tune our crops you know, in the field first, there's thousands of different varieties of grains. There's different fertilizers that you put on that could change the physical characteristics of the grain, you know, harvest techniques, all this stuff that is different for the distilling world than it is for the cattle market or the market that we were used to. And so we got the right varieties of grains. We figured out exactly what we wanted to do. Then we got our mash bills all perfect and dialed in. And we really hit the ground running in 2013 when we were able to finally get the the laws passed for the operation of craft distilleries in Nevada. And so by that time, we had everything ironed out. We knew what kind of stills we wanted. We knew what kind of fermenters. We knew our mash bills. We had grain sitting in the silos that we had already grown that was perfect for distilling. And so it's from 2006 to 2013 with that experimentation And then in 2013, Ash and I went to Vendome Copper and Brass and had them build a really state-of-the-art still. It's a a continuous still and a pot still that all kind of work in unison together. We strip everything in the continuous still, and then we redistill it in the pot still. And it allows us to kind of do quantity and quality by being able to do the the correct cuts, um, you know, in the pot still, but also do the quantity and efficiency that a, a continuous still offers. And so... 
like I said, we're really fortunate because, you know, all that experimentation and those years of the experimentation part allowed us to hit the ground running. So we built our still after we got the, the laws passed. And in 2014, we had our first commercial whiskeys coming off the still that we just released last December of December 2019. Oh, wow. And our distributor said it's a death wish for a brand to release a whiskey in December. All of the stores already have their stock built up. Everybody spent their money. You don't want to do that. And we sold about five times more than we thought we were going to sell. Oh, wow. Or we anticipated selling on the high side. And it was really fortunate. So we're really, really excited with the way everything's going. I have a question about the legislation and the permitting environment, such as it was back in 2006. You said it was virtually non-existent. How much of a role did you play in changing the law, codifying new law? How many trips to Carson City did you have to make? Oh, a lot. A lot. Yeah, so we had a lot of trips to Carson City. We had a, a really good lobbyist help us. His name's Mike Draper, and he helped us. He took us to meet all of the assemblymen and senators and everybody, and, and we really learned a lot on how the legislature works. Uh-huh. And and then, you know, in later years, they actually allowed us to sell only two bottles per person yeah, per month. Yeah, it was so at the first weird. One. Per month? Per month. <laughs> And it was two bottles per person per month, which just didn't really make sense to us because you could go to the grocery store and you could buy six bottles, for example, or a hundred bottles. Aye, but the middleman gets a cut in that instance. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it was just strange to us that Nevadans wouldn't want to help Nevadans, if that makes sense. Yeah. This is what we learned, though, is right at the last minute. So that was not in there. Until the last minute of like the last day to change bills or everything, one of the, I think, senators said, I don't see why anybody would need more than two bottles of whiskey per month. I'm going to lower it to two bottles per whatever. Yeah. And this is after they said, everybody said, you guys don't have to be at this meeting. It's a done deal. You know, Uh and so we we stay at home and we're listening to it or watching it on the phone. I think I was sitting on a tractor actually watching it from my cell phone. Like, oh my gosh, I should have been there to, you know, say something about this. And so anyways, the distribution lobby got to that legislator. Right. Yeah. yeah. And they've actually been really supportive and helped us. And I don't know why this guy did that, you know, but Mm -hmm. two years later, it's actually our distributor and distribution lobby actually helped us raise it to 12 bottles per person per month. Acceptable. Very good. Very enlightened. Very good. Yeah. And so, but we learned a lot, you know, you just can't count your eggs until they're in the basket, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. Right. It's crazy. So what came first? The chicken. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good question. I don't know. We know you make more than whiskey. In fact, very interestingly, you make an absinthe. But what came first? We have this wonderful bourbon and rye in front of us today that we're going to taste live with you. Tell us the distillery journey. What first came off the stills? Yeah. My love has always been whiskey. I kind of liked some gins, but nothing like whiskey. And so we wanted to do something while we're waiting for the whiskey to age. So from the beginning, we said, we're not going to release an unaged whiskey. Mm -hmm. We're not going to release a white dog or anything like that. We're not going to release anything until it's four years or more. Uh Right. There's a saying in the wine industry that you got to like what you make because you might end up drinking it all yourself. Yeah. I've just never been a big fan of younger whiskeys. And Uh so I just said, we're going to age it four years or more. And our whiskey ended up being five years average by the time we finally bottled it. And you've also never sourced whiskey. Is that correct? Never sourced whiskey or anything like that. And so we we made a little bit of vodka, gin, um, brandy, barrel-aged gin, absinthe, all this fun stuff just to kind of give us something to do, to be honest, while we're waiting for the whiskey, patiently waiting for the whiskey to age. And so all those products are going to be discontinued from here on out. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. We still have them available in the tasting room right now in a couple locations. But when they're gone, they're gone. Wow. We actually just took out our vodka column Mm -hmm. and put in another continuous still. And then we doubled the size of our old pot still was 500 gallons. And we just put in a thousand gallon new pot still to double our production for whiskey. Wow. Wow. Because we really have always thought of ourselves as a whiskey distillery. Like I said, that other stuff, we learned a lot on the TTB labeling requirement. Mm -hmm. You know, that whole distribution channel and everything, which is great. Because now when the whiskey was ready, we kind of knew a little bit about those different areas. I think it also um, allowed us to build a relationship with our distributor, which has been really helpful once our bourbon was ready and like, they kind of described they were waiting for it and waiting for it and then when we finally were able to launch 
we already had that relationship built up. That's great. Yeah, they've been really great to us. We're really fortunate. That's wonderful. So are you guys going to be doing any single malt since you have barley there on the ranch? Yeah, that's a good question. So we grow all of our own grains and we malt our own barley right here on site. Oh, wow. So it's one of the main ingredients in our bourbon. But we do do a single malt in very small quantities. So our, our ratios are 80% bourbon, 15% rye, and then 5% other fun stuff. So <laughs> we did a scotch style single malt. So we actually took decomposed corn stalks. Pete has just decomposed plant matter over sure. you know, mm-hmm. uh, thousands of years in, in the bogs. So we decomposed corn stalks. We took some, it's like flour that comes off the mill. And we mixed it with water and we kind of used it as like a binder to bind our decomposed corn stalks together and pressed it in bread pan in a big press and then dehydrated it and used that to smoke the single malt huh. so that it's like our own like proprietary peat. Like wheat, rye, barley, and corns all grown right here on site. Well, then we took it even further and we made our own peat. So that's kind of a fun one. Another fun one that we did was a quad malt mm-hmm. where our whiskey is a four grain. It has wheat and rye in it, as well as barley and corn. Mm-hmm. And our quad malt is the same ratios, but everything's malted, including the corn, the wheat, and the rye. Oh, wow. Wow. And it's kind of fun. It tastes like totally different than the bourbon that we made literally the day before, the traditional bourbon, mm-hmm. and the day after. So it's barreled at the same time. Everything's the same. And it's totally different. And that's in very small quantities as well? Yeah. just we Usually we just do one batch or two batches of each of these, you know, when we're doing batches of bourbon every day of the year almost. So um, yeah. And we also did a malted corn. We did a smoked oat and rye, an oat whiskey, a corn whiskey. We also did quite a bit of 100% wheat, 100% barley, 100% corn, and 100%, I think that's all four, right? I don't know. Oats, yeah. Oats, and and, and 100% oat. And what we wanted- Basically just took all of our grains and distilled them on their own. (laughs) Because we wanted to taste what each grain contributes itself. Right. And mm-hmm. so now we can taste 100% wheat, for example, and not wonder if this flavor is being contributed by a different grain that's maybe a 5 or 10 or 20% or whatever of that. Yeah. And whiskey. I think that when we start getting into the bourbon and the rye, our rye is 100% rye in the mash bill, which is really unique. You won't see a lot of those out there. A lot of rye whiskeys only have to be 51% rye or more. Mm -hmm. And people say, why did you do 100% rye? Well, it's this exact idea that we wanted to see what our rye tasted like in a rye whiskey without any other influence from a different grain. Mm -hmm. And I think it turned out fantastic. It's one of my favorites. Yeah. And it's notoriously difficult to work with 100% rye. Oh, man. Yeah. It is. Which is part of the reason it's not done very much. By It's done by very few makers. <laughs> in the United States, you can almost say that the more popular the whiskey is, the easier it is to make. You know, bourbon's <laughs> just super easy. You know, nothing wrong. Rye. And then we made oat whiskey. And oat has 60% holes. And these holes are like a protective coating around the actual grain itself. And they just floated to the top of the tank and just made like it almost looked like a muffin, like just of this stuff. All the, you know, the CO2 is pushing them all to the top of the tank. And I was actually walking on them, trying to push them down and couldn't get them to push down. Oh, wow. Wheat like volcanoes. You put wheat in the fermenter. It'll just look perfectly calm. And all of a sudden, it'll shoot up four feet above the fermenter and just splash all over the place (laughs) and then be calm again. That's crazy. Two minutes later, Uh not even like it's moving, you know, and it's wild. And then rye, they have a polymer in it. The viscosity is very thick. It's almost like, this sounds gross, but it's the easiest way to explain it is it's like snot. If you stick your finger in this rye and touch your fingers together, it's stringy. It's like, and then pull your fingers apart. It stays connected to it. And what that does, it doesn't allow the CO2 to come off during fermentation and float to the top of the tank. It becomes trapped inside this like mucousy material that's in there and it expands in size to double the size. And that's why it's so hard. We have to fill our tanks halfway up. They actually expand all the way to the top of the tank. Wow. And then it drops back down once the viscosity gets low enough for these bubbles to come to the top of the tank. But that mm-hmm. was definitely a learning experience well, for us. It was our, something we didn't know. <laughs> our first one, we knew that rye, you know, we did several smaller batches mm-hmm. and we had this defoaming agent. And we said, we're going to do 5,000 gallons. Our fermenters are 5,000 gallons. And we're going to be really smart, put a little bit of anti-foam on the top of the tank because it foams up. And we came back the next day and had three inches of rye snot on the oh, entire no. floor of the distillery. <laughs> what is your favorite expression to make? 
right now. And don't be like telling me just because the bourbon's easy. Like, come on. No, uh, to make or to taste or like, you know what I mean? There's well, both. What's your favorite one to make? And what's your favorite one that you like to drink? I get really excited. We're getting ready to switch over from bourbon to rye in November. And I just always get excited when we switch over to something new. I, I don't know. I, I, I kind of like them all. But for me to drink, I like right from the barrel, the cask strength and sipping through the different barrels and identifying which ones are a favorite. Maybe these ones are more standard, but this one, oh my gosh, it's the fruit bomb or it's the spice bomb or it's the you know, the caramel and the maple and the butterscotch. I love how every barrel has a little bit different of an expression. And as our palates really get better, we're able to pull out those flavors, which to me, that's a really exciting part. Yeah. And for me, I really like the, I think I like making the scotch style whiskey the best because we're using this smoke product mm. and everything. Yay! And it's really fun for me, but what we did was we made a silo. We put a little fan at the bottom and we put a wood burning stove on the bottom and, and we ran a duct to the top of the silo and we used the fan to suck the smoke through the silo. Oh, wow. Because we didn't want to heat up the barley and, and change it or, or caramelize it or anything like that. We wanted a pale barley. Mm-hmm. And so I have to go every like two or three hours and put in more peat. And so it's kind of fun at, in the middle of the night and it's usually cold because we're doing it in the winter to wake up and run outside and smell the smoke and put it in there. And, you know, I'm half asleep, but it's kind of cool. And the sun's out. Or, I mean, not the suns, the stars are out. And, you know, it's just kind of fun to do that. Oh. So how much peat do you need to make for one silo? Oh, it's not a crazy amount. Usually it's like eight tons. And we have these little blocks. And usually we'll make like about 50 blocks. And I, honestly, I don't even know how much they weigh, but we do it by the block. And by the, you know, ton per block. And I got it all written down, but it's been a year or so since I did it. So, but it doesn't take a crazy amount. A little bit of smoke goes a long ways and it really comes through in the distillation too. Mm-hmm. My favorite to drink or to taste during is oats for sure. Really? Mm. Because we did 100% oats and it tasted right off the stills like blueberries. Ooh. Oh, wow. The new make before we filled it into the barrels. And then six months later, it tasted like bacon. Oh, going mm-hmm. from blueberry to bacon. How come you didn't send us the oat one? I mean, <laughs> you had me at pork. Yeah. <laughs> then six months after that, it started tasting like oatmeal cookies, like super sweet and just oh. like oatmeal cookies. You haven't lost us yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and now it tastes really earthy. It's like, I don't know, in the wine world, it's like the earthy Pinot Noir of the whiskey world, I think, you know, just because it mm. tastes kind of earthy. It's kind of just mm-hmm. different. So it's kind of unique and I don't like to drink it all the time. I really am a big fan of just drinking bourbon all the time, but it's kind of fun to taste something different with the oat. Mm-hmm. So is that available in the marketplace as well or not yet? Not yet. Not yet. Yeah. So we wanted to release our bourbon first. So that was last December in, in Northern Nevada, February, like literally just before COVID in Southern Nevada in Las Vegas, the Las Vegas area. And then we didn't want to release these kind of different whiskeys first because we didn't want to be known for an oat whiskey or whatever, you know, we need to first get established as a bourbon. Sure. You become known as the novelty yeah. distillery. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We want to be a bourbon distillery that makes, you know, these fun things, not the novelty yeah. distillery that also makes bourbon. Right. Right. Of the bourbon and the rye, the two that are generally available, which hit the market first? Bourbon. Yeah. Bourbon. By quite okay. a bit. So we didn't release the rye until July. July. Yeah. Of this oh, year. wow. Okay. Yep. And it, we sold it out. We gave it to our distributor. We didn't have a crazy amount, just a, a several, a few hundred cases. Mm-hmm. And it sold out within days um, in our wow. distributor. So it was, it was. Do you think the bottled in bondedness of it helped move it? Yeah, I, I do. I think that the, the general consumer is liking the higher proof mm-hmm. um, products right now. And I think that bottled in bond, just the fact that it, it really identifies the bottles that they were made at the distillery by the single distiller in the single distilling season aged mm-hmm. you know, a minimum amount that's really starting to resonate with consumers and they're starting to understand that that's that what that actually it's means. a it's a quality mark and it so they're, yeah. Yeah, they see that and and it's, it's kind of a funny story about our rye we actually released batch one and two at the same time okay because one of the requirements for bottled and bond is it has to be distilled in the same distilling season which right. is mm-hmm. 
since the first six months of the year and the last six months yeah, of the year. Janu are the, January to June and then July through December. Are, are the two seasons. Yeah. Well, it just happened that we made our rye. We distilled it right at the end of June and the begin the next batch, the beginning of July. <laughs> we would have blended it all together, but yeah. we couldn't because it's bottled and bond and it just happened to be at that cutoff right. of uh, two separate seasons. Interesting. That must have made it a little bit more complicated. Yeah, it, you know, it did. And I think that they taste virtually the same. I have some customers that are getting a couple different flavors. For the most part, I think they're very equal in uh, quality. Mm -hmm. Was your distributor able to track sales such that you could tell whether there were people who bought one of each batch? You know, um, I'm not sure. That's a good question. It sold they, so fast that uh, I don't know that they, we were able to, yeah, to they, track that. They limited how much yeah. of our distributors could buy. And so I think pretty much, like you said, everybody bought as much as they could have one and two just because that's mm -hmm. all they could, could buy. Okay. I know if I were sure. at the store, I would want to get both because that's always fun right. to see what, you know, what the differences are. We have a thing for whiskey. That's part of the reason we do this show. Yeah. That's we probably do. a good we thing. Like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Anyway. What's the next expression that you're going to release? So we just got done doing all of our single barrels and we released 13 single barrels in the state of Nevada. I guess it's 12. Mm -hmm. If you could include the taste room, it's 13, Four, thir yeah, 13 yeah. 14, because we did two out here. But we partnered with all these retailers here in northern Nevada, and these barrel picks are, are a really big thing right now. Everybody wants to get their hands on, on yeah. their single barrel. But our single barrel program, we decided to do at cask strength to really showcase what that individual barrel tasted like. So we just bottled those last Monday, and they just hit distribution last week. Um, right in time for the holidays. And a lot of stores are actually already sold out, which oh, is wow. really exciting. Wow. wow. Now, is that a bourbon or is that the rye? What is that? It's a bourbon. bourbon. So they were almost six years old, aged, maybe a couple weeks short of that. But uh, they are, like I said, single barrel cast strength. Wow. Fun. Ashley, you mentioned the tasting room. Speaking of the mm -hmm. tasting room, we know that in addition to directing the brand's marketing efforts, you curate the uh, the tasting room experience. I do, yes. Can you tell us about your approach to that? Yeah, it's it's kind of our thing. We're located um, 60 miles east of Reno in rural Nevada. And right now we're only open on Saturdays, which works really well. We're able to get all of our customers through the door. Everybody gets a tour and a tasting we show everybody everything. We're very transparent and authentic in that way. We're not afraid to share our mash bill. It's something that we're actually very proud of, being transparent like that. So people are able to tour the still room, the fermentation room, the barrel house. We taste them through all of our products. Um, a lot of times me and Colby are here. So they're you know meeting the owners and we get tons of good questions. Sometimes we get really big crowds I would say that after the pandemic, it's been very difficult for us to control the crowds. So we have to ask people to wait outside and whatnot, but safety first, you know, the safety of our employees and the safety of our customers is, is obviously number one. Yeah. All right. I would love to come visit and take a look at the farm and everything. Now, Colby, are you still, so you're still doing alfalfa, I'm assuming for, so are you still doing rains and things for other sales? And then how do you break up? Mainly alfalfa, and so the farm's about 1,500 acres, and we only need four to 500 acres for the distillery, so the remainder is in alfalfa. Oh. Mm -hmm. And that's all this year going to China, Dubai, Taiwan, and Japan, so we're it's all getting exported, such high quality. So the market for alfalfa continues to sprout. Ha, ha, ha. Oh, yeah, it does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ha. <laughs> yeah. So the market's there, and we're, we'll grow into it this year, though. We're, we grew that the grain for the distillery. And what's really cool is, I mean, that many acres can produce enough. This year we're producing about 70 or next year when we when this grain actually starts getting used, it'll produce about 75,000 cases. So we have enough ground here to grow a lot of grain for whiskeys and to really grow into it in the future too. Yeah. But what's really cool also is we always grow the variety that we know will do well. And then usually we put in one or two other varieties just as a test plot so we can see if they do well. We can send them off, sample them. We can look at them. We can see how they grew, how they yield, how they, you know, all the different attributes to the grain. And we're always trying to evolve and get better. 
And what's really cool is if, if the grain isn't good for our distilling purposes, it's always still really good for cattle feed. It's almost the opposite of what you do for the distillery, for what you do for actually for cattle feed. And so we can cherry pick the best grain in the fields and use that just for the distillery. And anything that's kind of subpar or whatever for the distilling is really good quality for the cattle industry. And so we'll sell it to, there's lots of dairies around here. There's a lot of cattle farms and things like that. So there's always still a market for that. So typically we'll always plant a little bit of extra just in case something's off in part of a field or anything like that. We're always getting the best stuff for the distillery. Have you or are you experimenting with, uh, say, sorghum and triticale and, you know, more out-of-the-way grains? Yeah, we've experimented with all those. We've grown those also in the past. There's like things like crops called teff, sorghum, mm-hmm. triticale, mm-hmm. you know, everything. But really, oats is kind of the best flavor. We experimented with the, most of those before we did the, the um, you know, the big commercial distillery while we were in our experimental phases. And none of them quite tasted as good as your traditional Yeah, we also grains. did a little Teff. Remember that? Yeah, we did a Teff, teff whiskey, and it was really That's still kind in of the tough. barrel, so we'll, yeah. have to, we'll have to dig that one out and taste it. It was a little funky, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but my theory is, and we've experimented with a lot of these, but they're called like heirloom grains, you know, that aren't grown a lot. They're not very common, and they might have been grown 100 years ago, but they're not right now. Mm-hmm. But there's a reason why typically those grains aren't grown right now. It's just they're not as good. They're not as commercially viable. They're not as maybe flavorful, whatever. And so I just haven't been able to create something really unique or good out of the bloody butcher corns or the, (laughs) you know, the blue corns or any Mm -hmm. of that kind of stuff. It just, it's not the same as just our traditional corn. Sure. Right. Now, when you came back from college and you told your family, I want to start a distillery, what'd they say? So my dad's a CPA, and so he was all for it. And Ashley and I bought the ranch from my parents in 2009. And we're really fortunate because we bought it for what it's worth as a business, not for the market value of the actual the property. And so oh, wow. that gave me a lot of built-in equity. If I had to pay market value for the farm, I would have gone broke. I wouldn't even have been able to make my first payment. Right. You know, just the farm it, on itself doesn't generate a lot of income, you know, just selling commodity crops on the open market. And so um, my dad was really excited because he's always said that You'd be smarter to sell the farm, invest it in some other piece of uh, property, income producing property, something like that. You can make 10 times the money that you make and you don't even have to work for it, you know, mm-hmm. and but that's not who we are. That's not what we want to do as a family. I want to be able to pass the farm on to my kids, but it's really great to try to figure something out like we're doing with the distillery to vertically integrate and actually do something with the crops that's worthwhile rather than just selling them on the open market for pretty much what you grew them for. So, right. so that's a, why he was really excited. Of, yeah, there's a lot of years that farms, they they don't even make a cent. Mm-hmm. I mean, they end up spending more than they make. Right. And so when we're able to vertically integrate, not only is it helping us cash flow our business, but we're also able to um, see where the product ends up, which I think is so it's something that farmers like, yeah, very rewarding. That's a great way yeah, to put it. A lot, and I always a lot. tell people in the tasting room that when they take the bottle home, it's the first time that that bottle and any of the ingredients have ever left our possession. I mean, we've nurtured the grain, we've followed the grain through distillation, we've aged it, you know, we occasionally taste it, we bottle it, and, and we then taste we're it so again. yeah, taste, taste it, again. it again, and then we're able to share it with our customers, and that to me is is so rewarding. Yeah. A lot of farms, like one year out of five, they'll have a banner year. There'll be a big surplus. Yep. And then yeah. and then the balance of the five years, they're operating at break even or a loss even. Yeah. And that's really hard to weather those four or five mm-hmm. years. I mean, if you think of any other business, if they had to do that, it'd be really detrimental to their whole existence as a business. And so mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. that's why it's great to be able to be our own supply. We're using our own grain. We're not selling it on the open market. Right. Instead of just delivering a commodity, producing a commodity, you're actually producing an agricultural end product. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And then that's the best part because we always sacrifice quantity for quality. Right. And so by growing, the only way you can really do that is to grow it yourself. Because if, if you're just buying it on the open market and I would do the same thing, the farmer on the other side is probably doing what it takes to get the biggest quantity, but not necessarily the best quality for distilling purposes. Right. And there's certain fertilizers that if you use them, 
they lower your starch and raise your protein, which is very important for the cattle market, but not necessarily the distilling market. Uh So by managing our fertilizers, we can increase our starches, lower our protein, which almost always lowers our yields. But that's okay because we're using it ourselves. We ensure that it's the best quality. And we always say this for distilling purposes because there's nothing wrong with what other farmers do or whatever. And ours, our grain is not necessarily better than every other farmer's, but it's better for what we use it for here on the farm. Mm-hmm. Now, you said that your family has been farming in Nevada since before Nevada was a state. Has it been the same property this whole time or is it just all around the state? No, it's so it's been in the same general area but it's been several different farms. My grandpa actually bought the farm that we're on right now in 1944. Okay. And he lived in a dirt dugout, literally dirt floors. It had a tin roof with dirt on top of it. Wow. For three years, to save up enough money to put a down payment on this place because this farm used to be called the Island Ranch. And it's really a cool, really good soil. It's really good fertile farm ground right here in Fallon, which is the oasis of Nevada. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Was he homesteading? No. No. Okay. So he bought it from a, his name was Senator Robert Douglas. And yeah, it's funny because he went from living in a dirt dugout in the floor to the house that Ashley and I live in right now. It's on the National Historic Register of Places. It's built in 1918, which here in Nevada is extremely old. I know if you go it back is. east, that's, that's pretty young. But right. uh, And it's a pretty big house that's pretty fancy and everything. And so it's really kind of a neat how hard he worked and how he sacrificed to get where we are today. Very cool. That's wonderful. What a great story. Mm-hmm. I have a question about the label. Speaking of grains, the labels employ the term slow grown, slow grown grains, slow grown rye. Tell us what that means. Yeah. So slow grown is, it's kind of a philosophy that anytime anything grows a little bit slower, you don't rush it. Is typically always better. If you take like an oak tree versus a fast growing poplar or something like that, it's typically always better quality. And and usually when we grow grains like longer day corns, for example, and winter planted wheat versus spring planted wheat, it always grows better. And so all of our grains, the wheat, rye, and barley are all planted in the winter. Mm -hmm. They go really slow over the winter. They stool out, they get the roots go down, they start to really build like a firm foundation. And then in the spring, they start to grow. Versus if we planted spring planted wheat, it grows really fast. You almost harvest it at the same time. And so it's got to go from nothing to ready to harvest in a very fast period of time. And it, it's not usually as good a quality for us, for our, our purposes, for other purposes, it might be as good or, or whatever, but usually it's not as good a quality and the yields are a lot less and, and it's just not as robust as winter planted kind of slow grown crops. And then also we don't use a lot of fertilizers to really rush the crop or to make it grow fast. Because like I was saying earlier, if we do, then it boosts the proteins in the grains and protein and starch are inverse. So then it lowers the starch. And so anytime that we can grow anything the right way, it's kind of an idea that if you grow it the right way and not necessarily the fast way or the easiest way or the most profitable way. Yeah, that kind of just goes back to what we were talking about with the better inputs in the distillery, the better outputs. So, you know, our process, it starts in the field and it starts with the seed selection. So when Colby picks the seed for the rye, for example, he's picking that specific seed variety and nurturing it all the way through until we're done distilling it. Mm -hmm. And that to me is that slow grown process as well, that philosophy. Yeah, we want to do everything as good as we can, not necessarily as fast as we can. And then it's also kind of the idea that we want quality over quantity. Mm -hmm. Quality in, quality out. Yeah, exactly. With better inputs, you end up with better outputs. And so by growing it ourselves, we ensure that our inputs are as good as they can be. And from the beginning, when we built the distillery, we said, we don't care If something costs a little bit more, if it takes a little bit more time, we're going to do whatever it takes to do the best quality, not necessarily the cheapest, the easiest, or the fastest. Very cool. So speaking of the label and such, the bottle is gorgeous. Thank you. And I wanted to ask you if the logo with the FR and the little farmhouse, was that a family logo before or is that something you guys made? Is that a brand one might have seen on cattle in generations past? No. So (laughs) we do have a cattle brand that was Colby's grandfather's and then his dad's and passed along to Colby, even though we don't have any cattle right now. 
but that's what what was that circle quarter, quarter, quarter circle, circle c is our brand is our family brand that's registered in nevada but that but the fr with the silo and the distillery in the front that that's something that we created new mm-hmm. and we like just the crisp clean feel of it and it, it kind of was this idea of this new generation of farmers and distillers. We're raising a whiskey of the land. We didn't want it to be like that rustic and old because me and Colby, we're young and, yeah. and we are a new generation of farmers here on the farm. And we are approaching things in a more modern way than our ancestors mm-hmm. did. Mm-hmm. So we love that clean, modern look. And we pulled the color, that really beautiful yellow color is actually the same color. From the label. From the label is the same color as the corn as it's growing in the field. Nice. So mm. we really drew inspiration from, you know, the crops growing and, and pulled that through to the label. And then um, if you flip the bottle over, I'm not sure if you guys saw our little um, hidden yes. message at the bottom. But that'd be good to the land and the land will be good to you. It's oh, yes. just the, the, in full, the glass. Yeah, it's in the glass embossed. Mm-hmm at the bottom it's our strong foundation and it's uh, just the idea that we um treat the land good so that we can pass it along to future generations and and they can build upon it's what our, we've done yeah we call we call that our foundation because if we don't take really good care of the land we don't have a future and we, mm-hmm. we can't continue on here and so for me i'm really fortunate that my grandpa and my dad did really well on the farm and and took really good care of it. So I need to do the same thing so I can pass it on to my kids in as good or better condition than than I received it in. Oh yeah, the label itself is in the shape of a belt buckle. Okay. Aha. Like a belt buckle, but we didn't want it to be too cowboy or farmy or ranchy. But I always usually wear my my grandpa gave a belt buckle to my dad and my dad gave it to me, and so. That was kind of the inspiration behind the shape of the label itself without being, you know, we don't, we don't want to be a, an old timey cowboy brand, but it's kind of our modern take on the old, old school. That's cool. And then the bottle shape, is that a silo or am I just reaching too far with that one? (laughs) No. So um, we pulled the actual shape of the bottle. It doesn't really represent anything, but we wanted it to feel really good in your hand. So Mm -hmm. like when you pick it up, I mean, it's just got that really nice quality. It's, you know, it's substantial. It is heavy. That's for sure. It's heavy glass. Yeah. 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 The bottle design is just beautiful. The label design is beautiful. Delivers a lot of information, but very clearly. And the logo is at once I think traditional and timeless. Yep. Right. Thank you. Yeah, we appreciate that. And we are really I loving the farmers plus distillers. It's very it just tells us, you know, who we are. We're farmers and distillers. And both of them are important to the bourbon. Equally important. One other question I wanted to ask about barrels. Where do you guys get your barrels from? Do you have any any flavor? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, so we get all of our barrels from two companies. One of them is called Barrel 53. I think they're in Higby, Missouri. And the other one's at ISC, Independent Stave Company. Mm-hmm. And they're all brand new barrels. So we make mostly bourbon. And one of the requirements for bourbon is it has to be put in new American oak barrels or new barrels. And uh, so all of them are brand new American white oak barrels. They have a char four on the staves Mm -hmm. and then a char three on the head. And that adds a little bit of complexity when you're tasting it. That way they're not, it's not all one char for the entire barrel. Mm -hmm. Do you think you're going to get some used barrels for any of the other expressions that don't require the new? I don't think so. I don't think so. Just because in the past we didn't have used barrels to use. So all of our other whiskeys always went in new barrels. And so if we did start doing it in used barrels, it changed the flavor for future batches and yeah. expressions. Mm-hmm. Are you looking at finishes, at port finish, or sherry finish, et cetera? You know, we, we've kind of thought about that, but we just, we want to get our core down first and, uh-huh. and maybe play around with that. But I, I'm kind of a firm believer that I really like to make things kind of the traditional way first and then, then play around and, and we might do it in the future, but and there's I no just, plans for sure. I haven't found a bourbon that has that final finish in like a sherry cast or, you know, a wine cast. I just, yeah. I haven't found one that I like. And so for me, I love the American oak and the brand new barrels that we're producing. And I, I haven't quite found one that I, I like it, to be honest. And yeah, I was kind of thinking more along the lines of your single malt, maybe. Yeah, and that's why maybe yeah. we could play around with that. And that's the other thing is like, I like, you know, certain finished barrels that are finished in different woods. 
But I go back and I always think to myself, like, is this something that I would drink every day? <laughs> and usually the answer is no. It's kind of something that's unique and special. But I'd like to drink stuff that people can drink every day. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of uh, drinking. Speaking I think of it's, drinking. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's time. I've been sipping on the rye already. It's fantastic. Yeah. And I've been sipping on the bourbon. Ooh. Yeah. Where, where should we start? You guide us. Start with the bourbon. All right, let me get the bourbon. Yeah, our bourbon is our flagship product. It's about 80% of our production yearly. And our flagship is 90 proof. Yep, it's 66.6% corn, 10% wheat, 11.4% rye. And the remainder. And the remainder is barley, 12% barley. Malted? Malted barley. And it's all malted right here on site. So we have our own malt house that was designed and built right here in Fallon, Nevada. So we're really happy with it. It's a big drum. And so that is truly special that you're doing that. It is. Yeah. This is delicious. I mean, if you guys follow the podcast, I'm mostly a single malt scotch, a Speyside region type, but this bourbon is superb. It's fantastic. It is. Yeah. Yeah. So- I get the, just a very traditional the caramel, the butterscotch, the creme brulee, the maple. And I think that the four grains really are balanced yes. well. So mm-hmm. I get a little bit of the viscosity, that nice, rich mouthfeel with the wheat. And then just mid-palate, a little bit of spice from the rye. And then the finish is nice and long, which is the finish is what I always look for in a bourbon. Yes. And one of the things that is my favorite on our 90 proof bourbon and the legs are gorgeous you have managed to express all of bourbon's hallmark characteristics in one whiskey and that is unusual because usually one or another is missing right yeah and i think that that's also why we chose the four grains is we wanted it to be well balanced and we knew that we wanted to showcase the grains that we grew on the farm yeah and the other thing that's really important for me when we're playing around with mash bills and yeast and all that kind of thing is the finish and so if a whiskey doesn't have a good finish, it doesn't make you want to drink more. Right. And so to me, the finish is just as important as the rest of the experience. And so we chose specifically certain yeast. And then I think the wheat really adds to that mouthfeel mm-hmm. and finish. Mm-hmm. And that's why it was really important for us to add a, you know, add wheat, but also have rye just for that little bit of spiciness. So it's right. And there's a spicy bloom on the very back. Just the right amount of kick. Yeah. Just the right amount. Of kick. Yeah. Thank you. Oh. So I think you guys, I mean, absolutely, this is the best way to start a company. So when I start my whiskey company someday, (laughs) I'll call you. (laughs) We'll help you. Because I love the fact that you guys didn't have to source, start, and that you were able to maintain what you were doing with your other agricultural prospects to be able to start and do this so that when you release something, it was truly 100% you from the start. Yeah. That is like so amazing. I appreciate that. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing wrong with sourcing whiskey or anything like that, but we have to stay true to ourselves. And our whole goal for this was to showcase our grains. And so if we were to source our, you know, source of whiskey to start off with the, then it's not really being true to who we are and our story and everything else. And so we had to wait until our grain that we grew and barreled and distilled and did everything ourselves was done. And I think Ashley mentioned this, but in the tasting room, when people come here and buy a bottle. Yeah, yeah, I mentioned that. Yeah, yeah the, it's the first time. The first time it leaves our possession is when people take it home. And so that's really kind of a fun thing for us. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think I would cry. I'd be like, oh, my baby's leaving. <laughs> we got lots of babies. In. Yeah. <laughs> but a note on sourcing is the position of the show. And we're very public about this, that sourcing and transparency can make for a happy marriage. Exactly. Right. And that's why I always tell everybody, like, I don't want to mm-hmm. just come, I don't want to come off like sourcing's a bad thing and no. we're better than other people because we don't. It's only bad when you don't tell people your source. Exactly. I think that transparency is really important. And that's what we said from the beginning of our whole brand is that we want to be really transparent in everything that we do. We'll even share, our, you know, our mash bills or yeasts or our, you know, yeah. whatever. I don't think anybody could ever replicate what we do because- yeah. We grow it in our soil to our specifications and our terroir here. And and so, yeah, we're really open with everything. Speaking of yeast, where do you get your yeast? Do you make your own yeast? No. Well, a little bit. So we do all of sour mash or all of our whiskeys are sour mash. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And but so we pump a little bit of our previous fermenting well tank into the next tank, which 
that is an all sour mash. We take a little bit of our already distilled liquid and put it into our mash cooker. So like the mother dough of sourdough. Exactly. So we do that a little bit. And then we also add commercial yeast. We use a, actually it's a ale yeast. Okay. And then we also use a champagne yeast. And mm-hmm. so the champagne yeast is more for like alcohol production and the ale yeast is more for flavor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how did you guys go through the process of choosing your yeast? So we, we fermented lots of different smaller batches and, you know, really kind of tasted product as it came off the still. And really you can taste it right off the still. You don't have to wait five years in a barrel to taste what the yeast is going to change the flavor of, you know, of your whiskeys. Right. And so we were able to determine it that way. And it's kind of neat. We had a consultant come out and kind of help us that really knew whiskey and tasting and everything. And she tasted at this time, our whiskey was four years old and she tasted the four-year-old whiskey. She said, this is really good, but I want to taste it at two because I want to see what the barrels are hiding Hmm. in the whiskey. And so we let her taste it at our two-year-old whiskey. She said, this is really good too. I want to taste it right off the still because I'm not picking up a lot of flaws that typically come after distillation. Right. So she tasted it right off the still and she said, this is some of the best unaged whiskey that I've ever had. It's really good. It's really clean. It's really crisp. It, it, you know, you can taste the flavors and everything else. And it was really a neat compliment. And then a couple weeks later, she wrote another us an email saying, hey, I just want you to know I'm at another distillery and I just can't stop thinking about how good your unaged whiskey is. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> anyway. You ruined it for her. Yeah, maybe. You're, you're now the know. standard. She goes, she's like, mm, it's not as good as the free whiskey, free whiskey. I can't. Yeah. 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 And so that was a really good compliment for us. Well, shall we taste the rye? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So the rye is 100% rye, bottled in bond, and uh, it's five years. five years or more. It has a sweeter nose than I'd expect. It yeah, does, huh? I do. I get a little bit of honey yeah. on the nose, which I love. It just has that really nice, subtle sweetness. And then for it being a 100% rye mash bill, it's not going to be that overly like hit you hit you in the mouth rye it doesn't have that spice but it has enough to satisfy the person who's looking for that that right yeah like like palate. what's interesting is that the honey sweet nose is different than when you pop it in your mouth and then you Uh get the kick and it's like oh i wasn't expecting that kick with that nose Mm -hmm. like usually you expect a kick if you feel the kick in your nostrils right i agree yeah and then on the finish, I get a little bit of citrus. I'm not sure if you guys are sure up that yeah. citrus on the finish. I get a little bit maybe of grapefruit. Yeah. Which is really nice. So the same person that told us about our unaged whiskey, how good it was, said that we should call this sip and rye because this is just what you <laughs> sit out in your rocking chair and sip on, you know? Yeah, for sure. So I'm a big Manhattan fan. That's my cocktail. And I always go with the rye with with Manhattans. And I think this would be amazing. Oh, excellent. I generally do a perfect Manhattans and I usually switch out the Angostura bitters for a cherry spice bitters, but because Ooh. of the citrus on this, I, I may have to try it. Yeah. I need to go get some more Angostura bitters. Yeah. But... And this is going to cut right through. So I'm going to stop drinking this so that I can make a Manhattan later. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so cocktails, let's talk cocktails. Yeah. So our favorite cocktail to make, we call it a ranch hand. A ranch hand. Okay. And it's kind of our, you know, it's our, uh, so like on the farm, a ranch hand is just somebody that can kind of do everything. It's like an all around. A roustabout. You know, go get a hard worker. And uh, so this is our all around uh, kind of everybody can drink it type drink. It's kind of a take on a gold rush. Okay. And it's got one and a half ounces of Frey Ranch bourbon, three quarter ounce fresh lemon juice, and a half ounce of honey syrup, Ooh. and then a dash of aromatic bitters. Mm-hmm. So you shake it in a shaker and you pour it in a rocks glass. But what what's really cool about it is, and the reason why we really like the ranch hand is because we always use honey. There's lots of bees here on the ranch, mm-hmm. and so we have a lot of honey. We don't sell it or anything like that. We just we give it away as as uh, you know samplers to people or use it ourselves. But mm-hmm. we use our own honey from the ranch, and so it's kind of cool to have that whiskey from the ranch, but also, um, you know, honey from the ranch right here also. Mm-hmm. Could you send us that recipe? We will put it in the show notes. Sure. Absolutely. Yes. I would love to. Yeah. So basically it's 99.9% everything is you. Like the only thing you're actually sourcing or bringing in is the yeast. Is that right? The yeast. Yeah. Yep. From the whiskey. Yep. Wow. That's yep. crazy. That's amazing. Yeah. You are self-sustained. For sure. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. right. And, uh, 
expression and of us, I think that very much so. Most yeah, and who, and who knows? Maybe you'll cultivate a forest and uh, and fell your own <laughs> fell your own trees and mill your own lumber and <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Start barrels, I guess. Yeah, we also buy barrels, but we kind of tailored it towards like an estate winery. Mm-hmm. You know, where we grow, bottle, produce everything all oh, right yeah. here. You bottle on site, do you not? Yeah, they they buy their barrels and everything else, but in the distilling world, estate doesn't mean the same thing, and so we didn't mm-hmm. use the word estate. But we like this farmers plus distillers, and that's that really kind of explains us better than an estate distillery. Yeah, ground to glass, yes? Yep. That's our trademark is from ground to glass. So when people come to the tasting room, can they do a full tour and see all of the different elements of how you guys build your whiskey with? Yeah, so we definitely do tours of the distillery. Um, the one thing we don't tour is the farm, just because it's so large and vast and Farms are great when you're touring them, except for that there's a lot of heavy machinery and mm. tractors and trucks and, you know, large equipment. And so they're they're not always the safest for just general consumers to like walk around. But just driving mm. in here, you drive yeah. through the farm to get here. Right. And so, uh-huh. so you kind of get to experience that. And when you come to the distillery, you stop at the tasting room and you can taste everything. It's free tastings and then you free tours. You can see the grapes, uh-huh. definitely from our, our Window. Do you have any drone footage of the of the farm that you can start your tour off with? Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's we what do, we, we should do. do. Have yeah. Some. yeah, yeah, it's fifteen fifteen hundred cool. acres. Yes, yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah, you can. You just say, you know, we're not going to walk the fifteen hundred acres today, but here's a little here's a little video. Yeah, cool, <laughs> yeah. How many miles is that? Uh, three square miles. <laughs> anyway, well, this has been fantastic. Yeah. A delight. Thank you so very much. Yes. Um, we would love to have you back and the next time you put out a big release, especially if it's one of your nostalgic, fancy ones with the oat or the single malt or any of that. Yes, I'm excited for that. Your quad malt. Yes. Yeah. So whenever you want to send us that blueberry oatmeal, oaty one to oh taste, Lord. we would be very yeah. happy about that. Mm. Yeah. And bacon. Oh, we definitely will. We really appreciate you guys as farmers who grow all of our own grains and distill all of our own whiskeys and everything else. It's really important to get our message out. And sometimes we're busy doing other stuff. And so it's really nice to be able to stop and talk to you guys. And we really appreciate everything. Well, we're also happy to help. Yes. When we encounter products this good, it's just a... We like to shout from the rooftops. It's a pleasure all around. Yes. Worthy of shouting. Well, thank you. So hopefully we can come and visit you and take the tour and taste some more of your stuff. Yeah. I'd love to show you around. You just let us know. All right. Well, thanks guys. And we will catch up with you soon. All right. You both have a great day. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. World of Wheezy is up next. Stay with us. Hey, Louise, how's it going today? Oh, you know, just uh, trying to keep my head on straight. <laughs> so we got some whiskeys and uh, we had two whiskeys from Fry Farms and we sent them both over. What'd you think? Oh my gosh. I just love their story. I love the fact that this is sustainably farmed ground to glass straight rye whiskey. I mean, that just sounds like heaven on earth to me. You know, people that have said, okay, we've been, this is our heritage. We've been farming for what, over a hundred years, 150 years or however long. And now we're going to have full control of over what our whiskey becomes by growing it ourselves, growing the grains ourselves. So awesome. I love that. You know, you know, as a gardener, that makes me so happy, you know, so. Uh, and I think it's awesome, too, because, you know, very few people, very few distilleries can actually start their own distillery without having to source other whiskey in order to, you know, have something for the first three years. But because they're already farming their own land for other things, they didn't need to worry about making money, you know, or not making money for those first three years. So they were able to do a lot of experimenting until they found, you know, the right grains and the right source. I, I just think it's an amazing story. So anyway. Yeah, it is an amazing story. And just the photos that I was looking at on their website, it just looks so beautiful. I mean, you know, to be in the Lake Tahoe vicinity, I have actually never been there, but I have been to the Eastern Sierras up in California and it's just so beautiful. And so to me, I was like, oh man, this is high on my list of places to visit. That is for sure. Yeah. I'm hoping to get there. I'm I'm trying to get there maybe during the holidays, depending on what's happening. Cause if I go up to see my sister, she's only like 
two to three hours from there. So we'll see. Find yourself a little roach motel off the side of the highway so you can you can really <laughs> right. sample their product correctly. Right. So which one did you go with? Did you go with the rye or the bourbon? I went with the rye. I am so, I know, I'm so obvious in my, in my life. The bourbon was delicious. I just really enjoyed the rye a lot. And I also, when I was thinking about it, I wanted to pick up on some of those very forward spicy notes in the whiskey. Mm -hmm. You know, and of course I was thinking about like, if you were there, what would you be eating? And, you know, the fishing all in that part of Nevada, as well as, you know, crossing over the border into California. I mean, there's amazing fishing all over, all over there. Yep. And there's a lot of rainbow trout that comes out of those waters. And so I'm like, okay, I definitely would want like a whole rainbow trout. And then it, that got me thinking about this amazing whole fried fish at a Thai restaurant that does, that serves it with this really like spicy, limey and gingery like vinaigrette of sorts. So I think I would do a whole fried rainbow trout with herbed chili ginger vinaigrette. Wow. Like poured all over the top of it, like loads of cilantro and stuff. And it just seems like the right dish to celebrate the local specialties. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And like, I don't always, you know, sometimes I think we get too, it's too easy to think about drinking whiskey straight with the same types of foods. Like, of course, you know, beef tastes great with a glass of just like straight rye. Yeah. Of course, like smoked pork, you know, there's always these like really obvious things that are delicious for a reason, but that doesn't mean we can't venture out a little bit and think about it. Part of me was like, I don't know, would chilies and ginger work? But yes, because this whiskey has a great like spice levels. Yeah, it sure does. Like, I think it would taste utterly amazing. I'm intrigued by this because when I was younger, my dad used to like to take my sister and I fishing, but we have always end up fishing places that had trout because we're from California and we'd go to the Sierras and there you go. So I kind of wish that he was around so I could try this with him. Oh, I know. I know. I think about that too with my dad. He used to fish in Wisconsin. I don't think he was a very good fisherman, um, but he enjoyed being out on the water and everything. Yeah. And yeah, I'm, I'm listen, uh, we can make this and we can toast we can toast our papas at the big bar in the sky, and I, I'm sure they'll be enjoying this with us. A done deal. Let's do it. Yes. All right. Well, thank you so much for this. This is great. And we'll talk to you again next week. That sounds great. Talk to you then. For show notes on today's podcast, please visit our website at spiritsofwhiskey.com. That's whiskey with an E. We'll include links and supporting documents from today's Whiskey Chronicles, as well as tasting notes and recommendations from today's World of Wheezy. As always, you'll see upcoming topics, a guest roster, and links to past shows. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, Salon. You can become a sustaining supporter of Spirits of Whiskey by making a monthly donation. Just visit the Spirits of Whiskey page at anchor.fm. That's anchor.fm forward slash spirits dash of dash whiskey and click on the support button. And if you really like us, give us a five star rating and a review. Thank you. Spirits of Whiskey is produced by First Real Entertainment and the Center for Culinary Culture, home of the Cocktail Collection, and is available via Anchor, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are heard.